Today, readings come from the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 11, verse 1 through 18. Um, the text is printed in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. It also uh, starts on page 981 of the Pew Bible if you would like to follow along in the Bible. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found the colt tied at the door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying that colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when he came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not yet in season uh, for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat your fr- eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all of the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Blessing in Jesus. And we return now to you these gifts, these tithes and these offerings. We return them because they have first come to us Through your hand, we ask that you would use them in this world, in this place, in order that your kingdom would be advanced upon this earth, in order that the glories and the wonders of the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This morning and... Next Sunday, we're going to take a break from our regular sermon series. Um, Today, as many of you know, um, today is referred in the church calendar uh, to as Palm Sunday. Uh, And of course, next Sunday is Easter Sunday. And Palm Sunday commemorates the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the day he came into Jerusalem and was met with these shouts of hosannas and people laid down their cloaks and the palm branches before him as he came in, as we read earlier in that chapter from Mark chapter 11. 
It's the beginning of of Passion Week, right? The week and the events of that week that led Jesus uh, to Jesus' crucifixion on Friday and His resurrection on Sunday that we'll celebrate together next Sunday. But it all started here with Palm Sunday, with the arrival of the King. Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And my two oldest children, they're in elementary school, and I remember when they came home having learned about patterns in class, right? Patterns and pictures and with words and, and numbers, right? Repeatable designs or sequences of, of numbers or, or whatever. And I remember when they first learned what that word pattern referred to, how they were immediately pointing out everything around them that had a pattern, right? Um, but it's interesting that we are always recognizing patterns without being conscious of the fact that we're doing it. In fact, our brains are so hardwired to recognize patterns and predict repeatable sequences that we really don't recognize it until the pattern is broken, right? Uh, hopefully you know what I mean. You pay very little attention to patterns in your life until something goes amiss, right? And, and, and it's jarring, and because it's jarring and, and it doesn't fit with the repeatable, predictable pattern it, and breaks the se- sequence, it jars you and makes you pay attention. You, you don't pay attention to sim- the symmetry that's around you all the time until you are confronted with something that is asymmetrical, right? Two brothers... Uh, Chip and Dan Heath, they wrote a book a few years ago called Made to Stick, Why Some Ideas Survive and Others Die. And that book was about how to market ideas and communicate messages that will stick with people, right? In their work, what they highlighted, among other things, was they highlighted this principle that they called the unexpected, Right To make your message or your idea stick, they were saying, you have to break the pattern is what they were saying. You have to surprise, you have to grab, you have to catch people off guard. That's how you set the hook with people is what they're saying, right? You get people leaning one direction, expecting the same old stuff, and then you come right back and cut right across it with something unexpected and break the pattern and people pay attention to it. Now, here's why I bring all that up this morning. Um, because it's not just patterns in design or with words or numbers that, uh, that it's not just with those that we grow accustomed to and hardly pay attention to these things until the pattern is broken because it's also patterns in behavior and it's also patterns in response and activity and patterns of story right you expect certain people to act and respond and carry themselves in particular ways you hardly notice And you hardly notice it until the predictability is broken by something jarring and unexpected. See, I think in this story that we read out of Mark chapter 11, that Jesus does two things that are jarring and unexpected. And he does it to grab our attention and make us listen to his message. See, he is the king of kings making his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. He is ultimate power and authority himself. He is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. The arrival of the king on a donkey? You know, it's, it's supposed to be jarring to you. And then he single-handedly clears the temple courts. He drives people out and he curses a fig tree. He curses a fig tree. For what? For not having figs. 
even though it wasn't even the season for, for figs. I mean, it's jarring and unexpected. And what Jesus wants to draw our attention to in this passage is His character and His work. He wants you to notice, to stand up and pay attention to His humility and His passion. So those are the two things that I want us to consider this morning. First, notice the humility of your king. You know, humility, it isn't the first characteristic that comes to mind for us when we think about mighty kings and powerful leaders. You know, especially leaders like Jesus who come claiming to start a revolution. I mean, that's what he came announcing. He was going to bring the kingdom of God to earth. Right? With leaders like that, bold, that, that bold, we expect characteristics of strength and power and conviction, maybe, but not humility. Look, on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus gives a couple of His disciples some instructions. You can see those instructions in verses 2 and 3. He tells them to go and get a young colt or a donkey and to bring it to Him. But it isn't like Jesus... See, it's not like Jesus is just saying, go find me a ride. That's not what He's saying here. It's go to this place find this specific colt or donkey. It's going to be tied up. No one has ever ridden it. And Jesus says to them, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Tell him or say to him, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. Uh, One scholar on the the Gospel of Mark, William Lane, he makes the comment that all of these details that are given to you in this story, they're pointing to the fact that Jesus has already made these arrangements with the owner of the donkey, right? Now, why am I bringing all of this up? It's because you need to see that Jesus is very, very deliberate and intentional about what He's doing. Not any animal, not just any animal will do. It has to be a donkey. It has to be tied up. It needs to have never been ridden. For one thing, in the Old Testament, only animals who had never been used for a secular purpose could be employed for a sacred purpose in worship, right? A donkey that has never been ridden is what Jesus wants. And what he's saying, he's signaling this to you. He's saying something huge is happening, something sacred is happening. The king has come to town. But at the same time, this also signals the fulfillment of a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. In Zechariah chapter 9, you would read this. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, by riding in on this colt or this donkey, Jesus is saying, I am the king. I am the king that you have been looking for and waiting for all of your life. But I still want to ask one more question here. Why this donkey? It's the one thing in this scene that doesn't seem to fit the occasion, right? And you know why it fits, don't you? If you're a king riding into your city, you ride in with a show, right? You give the people something to be amazed at, something to be impressed with. In our day, what does this look like? This looks like you coming into town in a caravan of black limousines with a police escort and lights flashing, right? If you're the king, you don't roll into town in a 1985 two-door Honda Civic. It doesn't get you the notice, right? It doesn't get people paying attention. You, you know, if you're a king, you don't ride in on a donkey. You ride in on a war horse. You ride in on a big, powerful, 
animal, not an animal like this, an animal that's more fit for a child than for a king. It's supposed to grab us. It's supposed to make you think. It's supposed to make us wonder. You know, why a donkey? Because this king, this king is different from every other king who has ever lived. When you think king, you think strength and power and authority. And Jesus is saying, I am all of that. And I am gentle. And I am humble. And I am meek. So here comes the humble king riding on a donkey. And the people are singing, right? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You know, the word Hosanna, it originally meant this. It meant save us. Right. So the translation at the end of their song would go something like this. Save us, thou who dwellest in the highest. It's an appeal to God in the highest. An appeal to Him to bring salvation down to us. I doubt they fully understood the meaning of what they were saying here on this day, but it's very important for you and I to understand this picture today. Because the picture is saying that salvation doesn't come on a war horse. It comes down in lowliness and humility on a donkey of all things. Jesus came down and He entered into His broken creation, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a manger. The One who dwelled in glory in the highest, He humbled Himself and entered into the depths of your sorrow and mine to meet us exactly where we are. He came down in humility to humbly make His way to the cross that we deserved. Years ago, I listened to a lecture uh, that stuck in my mind. And in that lecture, someone was referencing a sermon by the famous 20th century preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And in this sermon, they were saying that Martin Lloyd-Jones said that there's a difference between news and advice, right? There's a difference between good news and good advice. Advice, he said, is counsel. You think about it, it's counsel about something to do because it hasn't happened yet, but you can do it. News is a report about something that has happened, and you can't do anything about it. All you can do with news is respond to it. He illustrated this by asking you to imagine a king of all things, right? Imagine a king who went to do battle for his people, right? And he conquered and defeated the enemy. What does he do when the battle is over, when the enemy has been pushed back and defeated? He sends back messengers to his people. He sends back messengers to tell the good news. Right? Imagine another king who was unable to defeat his enemy in battle. What does he do? He sends back military advisors right, to prepare his people. Get ready, prepare for the battle. The enemy is pushing us back. We're coming, position yourselves. The attack is coming. It's advice. Those those are very, very different messages, aren't they? News and advice. But he makes this very insightful point. Both kings get a response from their people. In both cases, there's a lot of activity. But one is a response of joy, and the other is a response of fear. This king, King Jesus... He rides into Jerusalem not to give you advice. The gospel is not advice. Do more, try harder, be more sincere, get things right in your life. Advice is horrible news for us. 
But the gospel is good news. It's a declaration. It's an announcement, an announcement that God came down to save you by giving his life up for you on a cross. And on that cross as he died, what did he cry out? He cried out, it is finished. Do you know what that is? That is an announcement of good news. And not advice. It is finished. Look, that is freedom when you understand it. Freedom to know that you can find the acceptance and love of the King despite all of your mess. Why? Because what Jesus came to do, He finished. And that is real freedom from the guilt and the shame and the fear that so often drives you in this life. This is the kind of King who can heal you from the inside out. It's the jarring, unexpected story that really all of us are longing for. For someone to approve of us. For someone to delight in us. For someone to really and truly forgive us. But let me tell you, many of you are still trying to get that same message. But you're trying to get it through advice. Right? Do a little bit more. Be more disciplined. Get cleaned up a little bit more. And that produces a response. It produces activity in your life, but it's driven by fear. The Gospel says something entirely different. The king left his throne. He came in humility and he went into Jerusalem on a donkey. Why? So that he could die in your place. So that he could change places with you. I know we need to go on to the next point, but I want you to hear this. I can tell you this morning with absolute certainty that if you come to this king and say, forgive me. He will forgive you and wash you with His blood. How can I say that with absolute certainty, knowing that it is true? It's because the Gospel is not advice. It's an announcement of what the King did. It is finished. Hosanna in the highest. Now second, I want you to see the passion of your King. Imagine an election year, right? And imagine in that election year, that some candidate came into the city of Memphis, right? And he came in to Memphis, and he's going to be speaking in Memphis. And you would expect for that candidate to give you his platform, or at least a piece of his platform, right? What does this person stand for? What does he or she care about? Now, illustration breaks down because you don't cast votes for the king. He's just the king. But I think that when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, What he's doing and what we see him doing is he is making clear to us what he cares about and what he is passionate about. Here's the scene. Jesus, in verse 11, he goes to the temple and he looks around, right? He surveys the scene. And then you have this strange deal with the fig tree right in the middle of this whole story that Jesus curses. And we'll come back to that in a second. And then Jesus, after the fig tree, he comes back to the temple, right? And he sees all of this commotion. And he started cleaning house. He drives out those who are selling animals for sacrifice. And he runs off those who are exchanging money in the temple. And by the end of the whole thing, some people are amazed and others just want to kill him. The king has come to his temple and he is obviously passionate about something. And it's something that gets extreme responses in this story. So what's the deal with Jesus in the temple? You know, the temple was made up of several courts, right? And all the commotion in this story is taking place in the outer court. It was like a circus in the outer court of the temple. A historian named Josephus records that one year during this Passover week, that's what's going on here, 
255,000 lambs were bought in sacrifices, not to mention all the other kinds of sacrifices you can make. 255,000 lambs, thousands of money changers, and animals being sold. And you get the picture, right? It is a circus. It's loud in there. It's confusing in there. People are jammed in there. And listen, the outer court, the outer court of the temple was the only place in the temple you could go to worship if you weren't a Jew. If you weren't a Jew and you wanted to worship God, if you weren't a Jew and you were seeking God's grace and wanted to pray, this is where you had to come. But it's craziness in there, right? How could you pray? How could you worship? So Jesus drives out the people and what does he say? Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Here's what I'm saying. Jesus is showing you when he comes into the city as the king, he is showing you that he is passionate about the outsiders. Right? The people who are supposed to be in the outer court of the temple. All of this busyness, all of this commotion, all of this activity, and it was keeping God's grace from the very people Jesus cared about. And so you see Jesus' passion. And some of you feel this way. Some of you feel like you don't fit. Others of you are trying to fit, and you have this nagging sense that you just don't belong because you haven't measured up. And so others of you feel like maybe you're just too much of a mess or you've blown it too big this time. You've blown it again and again. You know you're an outsider, a foreigner, on the fringe looking in. And Jesus, when He shows up at the temple, He clears it for you. The grace of God is for those on the outside. Okay, so what's the deal with the fig tree right in the middle of this story? Somehow, that little story about Jesus cursing the fig, fig tree has something to do with this story. That's why Mark, that's why Mark tells this story about the fig tree right in the middle of all of this action. Jesus sees the temple, then he leaves the temple discussion to talk about what happens to this fig tree before he comes back to it. And at first, it looks a little cruel, doesn't it? I mean, it isn't even the season for figs, Mark tells you in verse 13. And when Jesus saw that there weren't any figs on this tree that wasn't even supposed to have any figs on it, he cursed it. Maybe it's just me. That seems a little unfair. It seems a little harsh to the tree. Um, well, sometimes in the Old Testament, prophets would act out their parables or their prophecy. You know, It was like a dramatic representation of a story. For instance, one day, it's in the Old Testament, God told Ezekiel, the prophet, he said, pack up all your belongings. Okay? With everyone watching, he was supposed to walk around the city. Right? Okay. But that wasn't the end. Then God told Ezekiel to strap all of his belongings on his back, dig a hole in the wall of the city, and crawl through it while everyone's watching. Okay, it's gotten a little weird now. Um, but he was acting something out. right? He, it was God's way of saying to those people that the Babylonians are coming, and they are going to come and break down the walls of your city, and they are going to take you captive. He's getting a message across. I point that out to say that Jesus is doing something very, very similar with this fig tree here. It isn't the fig tree that Jesus is angry with. It's something else entirely. They see a fig tree, and when they see it from a distance, as they're walking, right, it looks good. The leaves are out, and the leaves are green, and it appears 
to be flourishing, right? But when you get close to the fig tree, even though it looks good on the outside, there's no fruit on that tree. And here's what Jesus is teaching them. Israel looks good on the outside. Lots of activity. Lots of busyness. Lots of religion. But when you get close to it, you find that there is no life. No fruit. It isn't the fig tree that Jesus is talking to. He is talking to you and me this morning. And he is saying that it is possible for you and me to go through all of the motion. It's possible for us to be busy, to be active, to be super involved. Very possible for, yes, good southerners like us to look good from a distance. Right? Good old boys with good manners who look so respectable and southern bells with all the charm who appear to be so put together. A multitude of good programs and activities in the church and things you can volunteer for. But is there life? That is the question. Is there fruit? Are you becoming different? Are you being made new? That's the question. See, Jesus isn't so much condemning this tree as he is condemning religion without life and fruit. Jesus' passion here, look, it's not just a passion for salvation. It's not just a get-out-of-hell-free card for the outsiders. Jesus has a passion that you and I would be changed, that we would become something different. He came to redeem your life now, to transform you now, not just in the future. He came that you might be different. He is the king leading a revolution that should be changing you in this very moment. And listen, some of you are desperate for this because you, when you are in your most sober moments, you look at your life and realize that you are desperate for more. That you want life and change and that you want to be different. That you want redemption not just in the future, but you want it in the here and now. That you, you don't just want more activity and more busyness in your life, but you begin to sense that there is something in the core of you, in your heart of hearts, that needs to be changed. Right? The outside, that's just veneer. The superficial change. It's not the substance. What you want and hope for is real, concrete transformation down in the core of your being. But how do you get that kind of change? That's the question. How do you get the kind of change that only God can produce in you? Religion and busyness and activity will never change you in the core of who you are. And it's not that I don't think that you should be active. But to really change joy and freedom, have to replace the fear and slavery that is driving you in this life. This good news that we just talked about in the last point, it has to penetrate us deeply in our hearts. Only then can you hope for the fruit that God, that Jesus is seeking in your life. I'm going to skip a little story that I had lined up, but let me just tell you the principle, and you'll be glad that I skipped this story, even though I'm not telling you what it is. Um, it's spring, right? And maybe some of you, uh, I don't know, maybe some of you plant gardens at your home. Um, let's say that you bought a tomato plant at the store. You dug a hole in the ground and you stuck that little tomato plant in the ground. And let's imagine that all you did was every morning you came out with a little water and sprayed down the leaves, just enough to get them glistening so the sun hit them just right and the light was refracted and they looked beautiful. Well, you would know that it would look good for a few days, that little tomato, sad little tomato plant in your garden. But pretty soon, that little plant would wither and die 
can never produce a single tomato for you because you, you don't have to be a farmer to know this, that the water isn't going to accomplish anything on the surface. It has to sink in below the surface and to the roots if it is going to bring life and fruit to that plant. I know it's a silly, sad illustration, but at least I spared you from the story. Um, Here's my point, though. We seem to have a really hard time with this in the church. We get so busy with the outside, trying so hard to make our lives look right on the outside. Don't mess up. Don't say the wrong thing. Know the right theology. Don't embarrass yourself by saying something wrong. Participate in the right amount of Bible studies. You know, be able to argue the right social issues of the day. Make people around you think that you measure up um, and aren't like those other people out there. Um, But you can do all of that and still know that your heart is withering and dying in the process. And the leaves, they glisten from a distance. But there isn't any fruit. And what you desperately need, and what I desperately need, we need to soak our hearts in the water of the gospel. Only then will you begin to really change and change from the inside out. Look, this is my first week back after taking off a week for spring break. And I don't know what most of you think about my job. There's probably all kinds of different opinions about what I do during the week. Um, Some people think this is the only hour I work this week, Um, and that's fine. Um, But I I do want to tell you, my job, it it works a lot like yours, because when I go on vacation, it's a break, but it gives me at least, in that break, a few moments of brief reflection. And you probably know from your own job when that brief moment of reflection comes. It comes the day before you got to go back to work, right? <laughs> because, because that's the day where you go, ah, oh, i got to go back to work tomorrow. Um, and let me be honest, just like your jobs, there are little things that I don't like about my job. There are even things that I dread in my job. But do you know what I absolutely love about my job? I, I mean, I can't even describe how much I love this part of my job. What I get to do right now, in this moment, week after week, right, having the opportunity to stand in front of you and say, the King of Kings, he came all the way down in humility. And guess what? He came all the way down for people like me, for people like you, who are messed up, who are broken, who don't fit. I mean, he came for the outsiders. Some of you are even hearing it for the first time. And some of you have grown cold and you've forgotten the wonder of this story. But this king, he didn't come down to give you advice. He came to bring you good news. It is finished paraphrase some song lyrics, all your debts were cast on him, and you must and shall go free, right? Though the law against you and me roars, Jesus' blood still speaks with power. When that truth gets down to the roots of your life, 
into the core of your being, into your heart of hearts, I promise you, you won't be the same. You begin to change from the inside out. One, one last little thing. Part of Jesus' concern here is that the Jewish people, the people inside the church, the insiders, they were so concerned with busy, the busyness of religion that they weren't caring for the outsiders. That's the fruit he didn't find in the temple. All the busyness, all the self-righteousness, all the programs that can be offered, all the activity of religion can't make you do two things. It can't make you love God and it can't make you love your neighbor. And that's the litmus test. When the good news penetrates your heart, it creates real, deep activity. Love for God and love for neighbor. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer. Come to him and find rest. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be together once again this week to hear the good news, to hear proclamation, to hear announcement that the King of Kings has come and He has come in humility that He might go to the cross to die for His people's sins. Father, may we find wonderful hope and joy in this announcement that He came for the outsiders, He came for the broken, He came for those who saw the twistedness and the corruption of their hearts. He came with good news. News of freedom. News of love. News of acceptance. News of forgiveness. Father, I pray that You would penetrate our hearts deeply with this good news. That we might be changed. As we come into this place, there are those who are anxious, those who are doubting those skeptical. There are those who are struggling hard in life. Wherever we find ourselves right now, teach us this very good news that though we're far more broken than we could possibly imagine, because of Jesus, His person and His work, we are also far more loved and far more secure and far more accepted than we could have ever dreamed possible. Father, cause that good news to break upon our hearts and set us free to bear fruit before you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.